Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information, visit us at myhomechurch.org. Yeah, we can honor our worship team. We gotta, we gotta teach at some point. We'll teach on on a, on a new song, the power of a new song, because the worship team's releasing new songs, and there's so much life on that. Man, it is really, really good to be with you guys. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. I just feel so much of what was happening in worship. The Lord is just already, really, just bring us into line. What I feel He's just putting on my heart for us to really see the sufficiency of what Jesus has done for us to be able to come in vulnerability and realness to him and repentance, to know that he has paid for it all in his precious blood. Man. The last, um, the last few weeks, we've been really drilling into a, to a topic on, on repentance. And I don't know if you've been here at all for, for any of them. It's been a few weeks now, but it's been pretty, pretty intense. But I really, feel, I really feel that this is such a beautiful time I, I, really, I really believe that, that Jesus is so serious about freedom. Do you know that? <laughs> really serious. And Paul said, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But then he says, so walk in your freedom. He says, stand firm and do not return to the yoke of slavery. In other words, Paul is saying, as Christians, we can be positionally free, but not be living free. We can actually be living as slaves still. And what we're talking about, I believe, is so connected to the heart of Jesus to really want us to walk in the fullness of what his blood has purchased. That as we learn, as as believers, to continually turn to the Lord and have our minds renewed, which then leads to a change in lifestyle and heart affections, that on the other side of that is freedom and life. And I so believe that God is taking us through what seems, and it is, it's intense, it is, but but he's after Man, I, I believe we're, we're, we're really going to see freedom in hearts in deeper levels. Like, there's just so much more. There's so much more. And over the last few weeks, so many people have even just responded just with testimonies of how we're really recapturing the beauty of repentance. We're recapturing the power, the impact, the effect it has on our lives. And we're really recapturing the gift. It's a gift, guys. It's a gift that we can turn to the Lord. Because if you actually read and you start to study the scriptures and you look around the words of sin and you look at the descriptive language used, it says that sin ensnares and entangles. It enslaves. It weighs down. It, it, it dulls the appetite for God. The wage of sin is death. And so in every way, Jesus has just taken this on himself. And the more we turn, allow him to just really just have our hearts, our minds, our lives, like we get to experience real freedom. Real freedom. And so we're recapturing the beauty of that, and we're going to continue to dive into it. The scripture, like the hallmark scripture for us these last few weeks has been Acts 3.19. I feel the Lord is just, this is just like it's neon sign. It's just blinking in front of me every time I get in the word, which is that one of the fruits of a life uh, that, that turns to the Lord, and I don't just mean a one-time decision, but continually learning to, to go deeper with the Lord, he promises that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. So repentance is always unto refreshing, unto revival, unto renewal. That's why you see in the scriptures and church history that one of the dominant marks of major moves of God is that, that hearts really get opened up to the Lord and they say, God, I trust in your leadership. Whatever you put your finger on, I'm going to submit to that. And the more we do, there's refreshing on the other side. 
There's renewal and revival. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right into this. I want to I wanna continue to hit that dynamic. Repentance is unto refreshing. Repentance is unto renewal. And uh, the last few weeks, we've looked at different individuals. We looked at John the Baptist last week. John had a baptism of repentance that prepared the way for the one who would baptize in spirit and fire. It's always this connection of out preparing for something deeper. And I want to unpack the life of David for, for a little bit this morning. Because David, we see this principle come forth in a powerful, powerful way. I'm sure a lot of you are aware, if you know the life of David, David had deep, deep compromise. I mean, it is what it is. It's deep compromise with Bathsheba and the things that he did. But I want us to see that as we track through David's life, I want to see that as David turns to the Lord, I want to see how God's grace explodes over the life of David in this place that seemed hopeless and how God restored it and redeemed it and went on to actually use it in incredible ways. All right? So I want you to turn with me to, to 2 Samuel, please. I'm really, I just want to jump in because, to be honest, while you're turning to 2 Samuel, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're not going to read it all. I'm going to kind of sum up a lot of what we're reading. But there's sometimes I feel like it's good to just stay on one simple thing and go deep. But in this story, I really want us to capture the fullness of it because if we leave halfway through, you can be left just kind of in the in-between state. So I want us to see the, the restoration of David as well. So we're going to jump right into this. But I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're looking at this theme of repentance is unto revival. It's amazing. I'm so encouraged. I've been reading this book. I went back to Revival Fires. It just tracks through all histories. This is the common theme that you see over and over and over again. I am so excited for what the Lord's putting his hand on. So excited for this. And that sounds kind of bizarre when you start talking about this, but I really am. Because he, he he's just so committed and faithful. And this is just one of the necessary steps to seeing things that we, we're, we're, we're believing for and trusting in. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read and highlight a few scriptures here. And then we're going to see a psalm that correlates to this. And then we'll see 2 Samuel 12 and read another psalm that correlates to that. All right, So we can really understand what's going on in the heart of David. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, everyone, I think, knows, if you've been in the scriptures, you know that David is a very significant figure in the scriptures for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is just the sheer volume that is dedicated to the life of David. I love David. Like, the tabernacle of David has marked us as a body. I mean, we, our house of prayer is rooted in the spirit of David's tabernacle. Morning and night, worship prayer. I love David. There's about 40 chapters dedicated to the life of David. But what's amazing is that 10 of those chapters is directly connected to this scene that's about to take place right here. Which means Holy Spirit, think about that, a quarter of David's life, Holy Spirit really wants us to lock into what's happening here. Why? I take no pleasure in studying a story like this and, and, and looking at it as if somehow we're better or anything like that. But I believe it's for our benefit. The scriptures call us in, in 1 Corinthians that when we study the lives of those in the Old Testament, they serve as examples and teachings, even warnings. And I really believe that as we read through this, there's both warning and encouragement to us. There is, because at the end of the day, on the warning side, David, as a man of covenant, really went into compromise, and he really felt the effects of sin. <laughs> he really did. Like, Jesus paid the full price, but as Christians, there's really, there's real consequence of things. And the stuff that he did had real, like, th there was real repercussions that happened. It's just the natural consequences. But the good news is, and then the encouraging side is that God, when David responded to the Lord, God met him there, and God breathed life on the situation. And what seemed like it would be the end of David, man, it was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. 
and, and, and God's grace just abounded over this. And we get to see how even a man as broken as David was in the situation was still called a man after God's own heart, how he used him. And so there, there's, this, there's a place where we're confronted and comforted in this. And I want, I want the full effect of God's word. David paid a price for what he did. And, and the idea today is we want to learn on, on the bill that he paid. <laughs> we don't want to go through this ourselves, right? We want to learn off this. So let's just lock into it and, and see how the Holy Spirit leads us. You guys with me? Okay, 2 second, second Samuel chapter 11. It says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. All right, stop for a moment. So the last few chapters, here's what's been happening. Uh, David has had a string of impressive military victories, one after another. Victory, victory, victory. And what's happened most recently is that the Israelites have been engaged in conflict with a group called the Ammonites. It's most likely around modern-day Jordan today, just east of Israel, probably about 40 miles so from Jerusalem. And they get locked up in conflict with the Ammonites, and this is how the previous chapter ends. When winter came... Typically, war would cease for that period. It was just not favorable conditions to go into battle. And so often, armies would stop fighting in the winter, but when the spring came, that was the time for war. That was the time to resume battle. And so what this says is that in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, this would be the time that the kings and the army should be going out to fight. But look what it says. David sent Joab, who is essentially the commander of the army, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, which is the capital city. But ready? But David remained in Jerusalem. So this is the springtime, the time when kings should be going out to war. But instead of going out to war, David remained in Jerusalem. I, I want to I put before you something I was just meditating on. Because what's about to transpire, the compromise in David's life, I believe right here, like this is the root of it right here. <laughs> This is what's going to set him up. And, and what I feel the Lord is speaking, the application for us, is that we were built to be in pursuit. We were built to pursue noble things, eternal things. We were built to advance the kingdom of God. No matter what sphere you are, are living in, meaning if you're a vocational ministry, marketplace, stay-at-home parent, at the end of the day, God has put by his spirit a an unceasing desire to live for the eternal, to really see his kingdom come here on the earth. And what happens is, is that the moment we take off from that pursuit, see, David should have been fighting. It was a time that kings go to war. But the moment that we, D David took a season off, if you will. David says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coast for this season. And the moment we get out of the battle, our hearts are more prone to get into sin. Because what happens is, is we, get, we get so vulnerable to discouragement, to whatever it may be. And, and I'm just going to, I want, my heart, man, it is so prone to temptation in those seasons. Because what my heart is, it's longing for something. It's not satisfied. It wants to live for something bigger than that. And so David's first issue is right here. Right here. Because David got out of the battle, his heart got into sin. I find it fascinating that David would have actually been safer on the front lines of battle than in the comfort of his own palace. Think about that. David was actually safer going into battle than he was sitting in his palace because that's not where he was meant to be. I'll just let the Holy Spirit minister that as he is in my heart. And so here's what happens as a result, ready? It says, it happened late one afternoon. Now listen to the progression here, it's really powerful. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. So David's palace is on Mount Zion. 
There's two technically tabernacles on Mount Zion. There's the priestly one, which is what we talk about with worship prayer, and there's the kingly one, which is where David is right now. That's where his throne was. David probably has somewhere around 11-acre palace. He's on his roof, and he's about to look. Clearly, he must be close enough to see with his natural eye. He's going to see this woman. So he's going out for a walk, and he said that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. First thing is he sees... And David sent and inquired. He began to ask questions about this woman. And one said, this is so important, we'll come back. One said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So man, this thing really spirals out of control pretty fast. But I want you to see the progression here of how David sees, David inquires. There's an internal choice that David then must make and then David acts on it. He eventually actually comes together with this woman and it gives birth to this child. And when I read this, the Lord immediately reminded me of James 1, 14 and 15. And what it says is that when we fall into temptation, it says, do not say that God is tempting you. But it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured away or enticed by his own desires. And then it says, desire conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what James says, James says is that actually where it starts is it starts in temptation. If we're not careful, it will always end in death. Sin always ends in death. It's always the principle, for the wages of sin is death. God told Adam and Eve, do not eat of this tree or you will surely die. This is why, this is like gospel 101, why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because he, he takes on every layer of death. Because it's not just always spiritual. It's emotional, it's mental, it's relational. I mean, there are layers that can happen through compromise in our life. So, so James says is that here's the progress. It starts in temptation. And if we're not careful, when we start, we get lured away, which means we begin to meditate on it. We begin to entertain it in our minds fantasize about it, think about it. And then what happens, he says, is that desire then gets conceived. Now think about that. When a man and woman, a child is conceived, there's something that comes alive within a person. Now no one can see the baby yet, but it's alive. At conception, the baby's alive. What this is saying is that there's a point when, when we've been meditating, when we make the decision to say, I'm doing this. The moment that happened, James says something comes alive. Sin actually has life, and it comes alive. And then it says... That desire conceives, uh, gives birth to sin, which is the actual choice. Once we now act on the decision we made inside, there's an actual birthing of something, which is said to be sin. And sin, when it becomes fully grown, which means sin never stops on its own, it's always growing. What we're talking about today is how you stop this cycle. It will be fully grown. It brings forth death. Brings forth death. What, what James talks about, what David is going through right here, because I want to encourage you, because sometimes when you go through this progress, this it feels like, you ever feel like I'm just powerless? <laughs> Do you know, one of the things I found is that the trap of the enemy is to get you to think that temptation is the same as sin. But Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet never sinned. And so what happens is once you feel temptation in your life, he wants you to think that's it. You've already messed up. No, no, no. There, there is hope in that place to actually be able to respond to the Lord. David had a chance right here, as James says, that when, you're, when you feel that thing going, there's actually, God gives grace to say no to ungodliness. Right. This, listen, this is the principle that Paul says, so important. Paul says, if you sow in the spirit, you'll reap life. 
But if you sow in the flesh, you will reap death. He's speaking to believers here. Born again, sealed, saved, absolutely. But there's death that we can experience. And one of my concerns is with the presentation of God's grace. The issue is not that we're presenting grace too much today. We can never present enough. Everything we have is rooted in the grace of God. We have nothing without his grace. The issue is is that we're not presenting the fullness of God's grace, which is that it's radical forgiveness and radical empowerment. But when you take the radical empowerment out, you actually present a doctrine to the church that emboldens them and gives them confidence to sow in the flesh. Because what we're teaching then is that the only difference between before and after Christ is that you're forgiven. There's actually going to be no change in your life. You're just totally forgiven. Guys, can I tell you the gospel is so much glorious than that? You are not only radically forgiven, but God has radically empowered you. He has put his spirit in you. This, This is so that when you feel that, you need to know that I have the spirit of God in me. Paul... Paul said prior, prior to knowing Jesus, he says, I've, he, in Romans 7, he equates sin to like this gravitational pull. And he says, the things I want to do, I can't. The things I, I, I should do, I don't. He says, who will save me from this body of death? He says, thanks be to God who has rescued me in, in, in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, he says, therefore, I set my mind on the spirit now. I walk by the spirit, not gratifying the desires of the flesh. Paul says, I found a power that is greater than sin. It is the Holy Spirit, and it lives in me. We don't have to fall prone to that. Hebrews 2.18, because Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, he understands. God has given so many ways for us to turn to him in these moments and not be swept away. Yes? Now, here's one other thing that's really good news. Look at verse 3. I think this was amazing. I never saw this before. It says, and David sent... And inquired about the woman. And look what it says. And one said. Now we don't know who this person is. And I believe that's because the messenger is not important. But the message is. And one said. Is not this Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now why is this so significant? Because these two men. Eliam and Uriah. Were part of what's known as David's mighty 30 men. David had a hall of fame of soldiers. They were the most loyal. These two guys were part of that. It actually swelled up to 37, but they kept it at 30 for marketing purposes. They didn't want to change it. Always say David's mighty 30 men. But listen, someone as David, this is, I feel the Lord on this right now. When you feel, when you feel the pull of the enemy to come into sin, God is always providing obstacles of grace to awaken you and get you to say, wait a minute. As David is ready to give into this, someone, someone steps up by the leading of the Lord and says, wait a minute. David, isn't this Bathsheba? Isn't this the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, two of your mighty 30 men? And the hope was that David, in hearing that, would lean into the grace of God and say, you're right, I'm not going to go through with this. But David overrides that. (laughs) And and I can't say that I haven't done myself, but David overrides that. And here's what happens is that for the rest of the chapter, we actually see David now trying to cover up what has taken place. Now, I'm not going to read it in its entirety, but let me, let me just summarize it because it's important. You guys follow me? So David, once he finds out that, that Bathsheba is pregnant, he sends word to have Uriah return from the battlefield and come home. So this is a big deal. The king is summoning you. Uriah comes home, and you almost pick up, it's, if it wasn't so tragic, it's borderline comic because Um, comical because Uriah comes in and he's like, David, my king, what do you want? And David's like, well, how you doing? (laughs) How's Joab? 
how are the men doing out there? And he's like, they're good. You could have sent a messenger to do this. Why am I here? And he says, listen, you've been fighting so hard. I want you to stay home for this next night. And he says, in fact, I want you to go to your, to your house. And he says, wash your feet, which is an expression of enjoy the comforts of your house and the comfort of your wife. What he wants him to do is he wants him to sleep with his wife so that Uriah thinks that this child is his. I really want us to see, though, the downward spiral of what begins to take place. This is a man after God's own heart. So they go, and he actually says, I'll send you a, a basket of food, he says. He says, I'm going to create the ambiance for you. He goes to bed. Wake up, he wakes up the next day, and to, to his discouragement, what he finds out is that Uriah did not go home. Uriah slept outside of his door with his men. And he says, Uriah, what are you doing here? And Uriah says, David, the Ark of the Covenant and my men are dwelling in booths. In other words, they are in the open field. How could I possibly go home and sleep in the comfort of my house and be with my wife? Now think about what that did to David's heart. <laughs> the honor that was responded back and how that must have pricked his heart. It's another way God was trying to awaken David. So David says, fine, stay here. I'll stay here one more night and I'll send you back the next day. Plan number two, David then sets up an elaborate feast and then he says, I'm gonna get Uriah drunk, hoping that his... His guard will come down, the passions will get the best of him, and certainly he'll go home. But once again, he finds the same thing. And then in verse 14, if you want to look at this, this is one of the most sobering statements. One of the, uh, just a dark moment over David's life. And we got to feel this because there's going to be radical renewal coming. All right? So stay with me here. But we got to see the depths of this. In the morning, after the second time, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So David, in the morning, that's what he does. He writes a letter to Joab, and he gives it to Uriah to give to Joab, and it was actually a death sentence for Uriah. Think about how deep this is getting, where he literally hands a letter to this man with the man not even realizing that it's actually your death sentence. And the letter says to Joab, it says, listen, Joab, wherever the battle is fiercest, I want you to put Uriah and the men there, and then withdraw the troops, and Uriah will be killed. This is premeditated murder now. This is really, really deep. So, so Joab gets this, and Joab will ultimately follow through. And I want you to hear something. It says in verse 16 that when the city was besieged, that is when Joab sent Uriah and the men in. Why is that significant? I think for this reason. In military, when you besiege a city, you encircle it. You surround it, and you cut off every necessary supply, which means the most foolish thing that you can do is send troops in at that time. You have won the victory. The only thing you have to do now is wait out those that are in that city until they come out and surrender. But while they're surrounded, Joab is forced to send his men and make a completely irrational, foolish decision that would go counter to everything that he's learned. Why? Because now he's being brought into the sin and compromise of David as well. Everyone around is beginning to feel the effects of this. And then finally, Uriah is actually killed. And I want you to see verse 26, 27. It says, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Verse 27. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That is a sobering, chilling statement. That the thing that David had done, the Lord had noticed, and it displeased the Lord. David, the Lord loves David. He loves him. But the thing that he did, he's always delighting the relationship, but the thing that he did displeased the Lord. And, and here's, this is such an important thing to understand. That, that the time frame right now, it's been about a year because this child has been born. 
The next chapter, we're going to see how God sends Nathan a prophet. But between that time, you have about a year that has gone by. I want everyone to listen to this. That means for a year, when David has done all of these things outwardly, everything has stayed the same. See, this, guys, this is the trap and the deception of what happens in compromise and sin. Because for a year, it says, wait a minute, my plan worked. I got away with it. Nothing has happened. I'm still king. I'm still anointed as king. I'm still functioning in the things I'm supposed to do. Nothing has been addressed. Everything is good. Can I tell you in my own life, one of the scariest places that I've been is when I still get up and speak and people say, man, that was really anointed, but deep down I know there's a fracture in my relationship with the Lord. It's a really scary place to be when you're still able to go through the functions and God in his goodness is still blessing it, the gifting and anointing is still in your life, but yet our hearts are still far. The, the patience of God is not meant to embolden us in sin, but actually cause us to turn and repent. It says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. When you repent, that's not when God starts showing you kindness. It's actually his kindness that's being expressed while we're running, while our hearts are hard, that he's hoping to awaken us. It's when I can still go through my functions and I'm like, oh my goodness, God, you are still using me despite this, that I get broken inside. And it's his kindness that caused me to say, Lord, what am I doing? I want you. I want you, God. And the Lord was expressing kindness to David over this year in hopes that David would respond. But this is so critical. My question this is, could David really be unaffected? I mean, this is a man of covenant. It is. I'm not going to get into how, actually, you want to know how men were saved in the Old Testament? Jesus. You say, what do you mean Jesus didn't come? They put their faith that God was going to provide a Savior and Messiah. Every person in the Old Covenant was saved by looking forward to to the Messiah. We are saved by looking back to the Messiah. But it's always been Jesus. David was a man of covenant. He would be saved under that because he trusted that God would provide the Messiah one day. This is not an outsider. This is, a man of, this is a man who knows the Lord. And David, like, what? He's, something's got to be feeling. There's no way you can go about your life like that and not be affected. And I'm like, I want to know what's going on. And Psalm 38, guys, gives us the insight into what David was feeling and thinking over this year. I want you to see this. Turn with me to Psalm 38. And then we'll come right back to 2 Samuel. So most of the Psalms, as you're turning there, Psalm 38, most of the Psalms do not outrightly give us the direct connection, but through studying life of David and through seeing other Psalms that we do know correspond to this episode in his life, myself and men that I really respect overwhelmingly would see this is connected right to the year between what David did with Bathsheba and the prophet Nathan, which is the next chapter. This right here, Psalm 38, describes what's happening in the heart of David over this past year. You guys with me? Really important. So if I would give a title to Psalm 38, it would be that sin is costly. Like if David could talk to us today, I think he would say, guys, I want you to know it's Psalm 38. Psalm 38 is what happened in my heart in the year that I got away with it. (laughs) He would say, I didn't get away with anything. I want you to know what happened in my heart. And this isn't about God trying to catch. He would say, I want to let you know that it is never worth it. Like, this language is, is really intense. We live in a culture that advertises and glamorizes sin and perversion, especially lust. Psalm 38 is the counter ad. Psalm 38 says this is what really goes on in a human heart when they actually fall into compromise and come out of alignment with God. You guys there, Psalm 38? 
All right, so here's what it says. This is, what's, this is what David's experiencing in his heart when he's living over this last year, still functioning as king, but this is what's happening. He says this, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying, what he's asking for when he says, do not rebuke me or discipline me, he's talking about outwardly. He says, Lord, please don't, don't let this be something public. I don't want unfavorable circumstances to have to, have to uh, uh, discipline me. But inwardly, he's saying, Lord, your arrows are piercing me and your hand is upon me. David says, inwardly, I feel something. Uh, maybe next week, if not the week after, I feel the Lord really wants us to unpack the discipline of the Lord. It's really connected to this. And I just want to put this before you. The discipline of the Lord is so beautiful. His discipline is not a sign of his rejection of you. It's a sign that he's committed to you. He disciplines those that he loves. What's happening to David is he's saying, David, I love you too much to leave you here. I will not leave you here. David, because I, because I care about you and because you, are, you were made for more, I'm not going to let you settle in this place. And so David is feeling the faithful discipline of God as a good father. David's sonship is actually being confirmed by what's saying, as crazy as some of these words are, this is confirming that he belongs to God, and God says, I love you, and I'm not going to let you drift off in this place. David, I'm coming after you. And David says, David says, verse 2, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down upon me. That's really intense. And the next few verses is David describing what it feels like to have the arrow of the Lord sink into his heart. What it feels like to have God's hand upon him. Look what it says. You almost need a label, viewer discretion advised here. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really, really serious. But listen, my life identifies with this. And I'm sure other people can too. And, and there is Jesus. Jesus is the answer to what. And you know what's amazing is that everything we're about to read, everything we're about to read, Jesus felt for us. Jesus, he's the, only, he's the true David. He's the true son of David. And he experienced this on our behalf. And it says this, there is no soundness in my flesh. This is verse three. Because of your indignation, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. David is not giving just poetic language. He is really feeling something weighty inside of his heart right now. Verse four, he says, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. I mean, I believe God wants to set so many free. I really do. He says, my iniquities have gone over my head. They are too heavy for me. You know what he's saying? I cannot enjoy life anymore. He says, I've lost the ability to have pleasure in life. I am overwhelmed and drowning in what I am in. I can't enjoy life. I can't enjoy my family. I can't enjoy my instruments. For David was a man who worshiped God and invented instruments. He said, I can't enjoy any of that. It's been swallowed up. Delight for life has been swallowed up. David had too much sin to enjoy God but too much of God to enjoy sin. It's a place that, I, again, I've experienced that. Too much sin where it's like, I can't, like, I get agitated around the things of God. You know, you ever been there? Like, you get frustrated. People start sharing testimonies. You're like, I just want to get out of here right now. Yet at the same time, whatever I want to go back to, I can't fully enjoy either because there's too much of God in me. And he won't let me do that. And so David's in this torn place. He's just torn up inside. This is, man, thank God for his hand being upon our lives. Look, verse 5, he says, I mean, this is, this is just, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. 
Verse 7, for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. Again, this is the cost of sin, right? He says, my sides are filled with burning. He says, my inward parts, it's like inflammation. (laughs) Oh, outwardly, I'm performing my functions. Outwardly, I'm giving the smile. Outwardly, I'm doing all that I'm supposed to. That hasn't changed. But if you were to pull me inside and say, what's going on? He says, I feel like my insides are burning right now. He says, I'm feeble. Verse 8, I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Verse 9, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. And then verse 10, my heart throbs. My strength fails me. In the light of my eyes, it has also gone from me. You can keep reading this psalm. But David sums it up at the end by saying, guys, I've lost strength. My heart has failed me. My eyes, the light of my eyes is gone. David's actually saying, I have no motivation to go on. (laughs) I've lost drive for life. I've lost enthusiasm for life. I have no passion. Every small task is overwhelming to me. Have you been there? You wake up and just the thought of the smallest task, you say, it's too much for me. David is overwhelmed by this. But everything is about to change in David's life when he turns to the Lord and because of the power of confession. The power of confession. Everything will change. If I were to see a man come in or a woman come in and describe these words to me right now, my first thought would say, Brother, you need to go see someone. You need meds. You need, you need something. I don't know, but that's, that, that's, that's, beyond my, that's beyond what I can do. But you know what David needed to do? Just repent. He actually just, he said in Psalm 32, my bones wasted away when I kept silent. Oh, but when I confessed, the joy of the Lord came into my heart. Go read Psalm 32, the sequel of what happens here. The power of confession. There's something that happens when we come into agreement with Jesus is highlighting in our life, there's humility there and there's power that breaks over our life. So everything's about to shift for David because of this. So come back to 2 Samuel 12. So if you stay with me through this far, then good. (laughs) Because here's... Here's where everything shifts, but I wanted you to see the realness of that. And so everything's going to change in David's life because ultimately he's going to turn to the Lord. Here's what happens. The Lord has been after David with inner promptings. The Lord has been pricking the heart of David, and David has been resisting. So what does the Lord do? He is now going to send a prophet by the name of Nathan. Can I tell you, I see this pattern in Scripture and in my life. There are times where the Lord will speak into my life by the Spirit, by the Word. And if I continually resist that, the Lord is so faithful, He'll send a Nathan into my life. He's so good that He'll send someone to say, hey, and He'll confirm what He's speaking in my life. Thank God that the Lord sends Nathans. In fact, when we go into the discipline of the Lord, it's amazing how in the end David honored Nathan. He honored the man who was willing to speak truth. But David has a choice. Will he respond to Nathan or not? And because he will respond rightly, this chapter is the turning point of restoration. As tragic as it was in all that we read and how many people were affected, everything is about to be reversed and turned because David is going to respond to the Lord, repent, and God is going to meet him and bless him in this place. Are you ready? (laughs) Dina's like, yes, bring this. (laughs) I'm done with the wounds of festering. (laughs) So, So here's what it says. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, So Nathan is going to come, and Nathan is going to give a parable. 
Now, I believe this is the wisdom of God because Nathan doesn't just outrightly say, David, this is what you've done. He gives a parable which actually brings down the wall in defense of David and gets David's heart to engage. And in the end, he's going to flip it on him and say, this parable is actually about you. And here's, here's the story. I'll sum it up for you. Nathan says, David, there are two men, a rich man and a poor man. And he says, the rich man has many herds and flocks, but the poor man has one little lamb. He says, this poor man loves this lamb. He raises it actually as one of his own daughters. He feeds it from, its plate, from his plate. He gives him to drink from his cup. He cherishes this lamb as he would one of his children. He says, and a foreigner comes in, a traveler. And the rich man does not give the traveler one of his own from the abundance that he has. Instead, he goes to this poor man and takes the one little lamb that he has and gives that to the traveler. Now look what it says in verse 5. This is how David responds. It says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. Now what that tells me that we all need to receive in our life and me is that David, when he heard this story, there was a real righteous anger that, that, that was aroused. But it tells me that it's easy for us to spot the sin and failures in others than it is in our own life. And when David heard this story, he said, oh man, that is not right. And Nathan said, David, don't you know, that's what you're in right now. That's what, listen, when the Lord started, started like leading us into this, the first thought, maybe it's for you and you hear, hey, we're going to really get into repentance. It's like, yes, this person, this person, this person. If that was our thought, the Lord needs to say, no, you're that man. <laughs> no, we need to hear this for ourselves. We need to receive this into our life. This is for us. Scriptures say that how can, we, how can we take the speck out of our brother's eye if we do not take the log out of our own? In other words, it's not saying actually do not hold one another accountable in love. What it's saying is you'll never be able to rightly hold someone accountable if you still have a log in your own eye. Have the same zeal to confront your life as you do to confront your brother and sisters. That's what it's saying. Hold each other accountable. That's a part of being the body of Christ, but make sure you hold yourself to that same accountability. And so David hears this, and Nathan goes on by the Lord to say, um, you, you were the rich man. You had an abundance of flock and all those things. I gave you everything. You've inherited everything from Saul because Saul, pretty much entire family was wiped out. David received it all. Look at verse 8. I think this is a sobering statement as well. As Nathan is, is saying this, by the Lord, it says, And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Now listen to this. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. He said, David, I've given you everything. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. All you had to do was come to me. If there was something that you were looking for and searching for, if you just came to me, David, oh, I would give it to you. Do you know how much I love you? David, why did you go outside of me? And then ultimately, Nathan lays out the twofold. He really lays out the real consequences of this. I mean, there was, again, borderline rape took place. There was premeditated murder. There was real consequences. The sword would never leave David's family. For the next 25 years, David would feel that. Um, it said, someone from your own house will be your adversary. It wanted being Absalom. Even this child they lost. There was a lot that took place. The point is, is that there are real consequences to the decisions we make, right? 
But, but, Nathan then said, you will be blessed. Because you responded to the Lord, you will be blessed. And God, God is going to, God's going to give you four new children. God is going to do incredible things. In fact, I want you to hear this. God so restored what took place because David responded rightly in repentance that when God was creating the family tree for his child, the Messiah, to come forth, he said, my son will come through the line of David. My son will actually be known as the son of David. But what's even crazier than that is that David had multiple wives. God could have said, that's a whole other story, but God could have said, David, he's going to come through you and he's going to come through this other wife. But God says, no, no, no. My son will not only come through you, David, but he's going to come through you and Bathsheba. I'm, my grace is going to so explode over this broken relationship that this union that started off in sin, because you've responded rightly, my son will one day come forth through this. Think about how incredible that is. The hope of restoration that comes forth. But, but I believe, honestly, God, David had a part to play in this. David had a part. Could have David just locked in, refused the Lord, and went to heaven one day? Of course. Of course. But, man, I'm after the more of God. I, I want the more of God in my life. And if there are things that are out of alignment... I say, God, I'm going to surrender to you. Amen. So last, last Psalm, Psalm 51. This is where we'll close. Psalm 51. Listen, no matter what has happened in your life, I'm telling you, what God did through David and Bathsheba, he can do in your life and my life. Would we, would we just not let our hearts be hardened today and hear the voice of the Lord and hear the voice of the Lord? So listen, Psalm 51, what did David do? How did he respond? Because that would be good news. That, that would be good for us to listen to. Psalm 51, there's no guessing here. Look at, how, look at the subtitle. Psalm 51, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him and after he had gone into Bathsheba, after he had been with Bathsheba, Literally, Psalm 51 is the way that David responded, which led to God restoring all that was broken. I, I, we're not even going to be able to touch like a fraction of this. I would say, guys, chew on this. Sink your teeth in this. Meditate on this. Let this be just part of our daily lives with the Lord. So this is a model for us. Let me share the first few verses, and then verse 10 is the heart of it for me, for today at least. Where does David, here's the question, where does David find confidence after committing, let's just call it for what it is, such atrocities, really, where would David find confidence to go before God and be real and vulnerable? Well, look what David says. Have mercy on me, O God. Why? According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. In other words, David's appeal, his confidence, is found and rooted in the nature of God. He says, God, I know that you are merciful and I know that you are loving and I'm coming to you for forgiveness not because I've got the best repentance script laid out. That's not what it's about. It's not because I'm David and I'm a king. He says, I'm coming in confidence because I know your nature. And if David could come with confidence, he never saw God bleed out on a cross for him. And we have. How much more confidence can we come and say, God, the scriptures say God is faithful and just to cleanse us when we confess. He is just, meaning he has to forgive us. Why? Because that's how powerful the blood of Christ is over your life. When you come under the blood of Christ, you, you, you appeal to the blood of Jesus. You say, Father, 
I'm covered by the blood. You abound in mercy, God. Therefore, I know you are just and you will wash me. You will cleanse me. You will set me free. That is good news. Verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The blood of goats and animals can only cleanse outwardly. Jesus cleanses inwardly. Cleanses on the inside. Peter, Peter, one time when Jesus was having his feet, when Jesus was going to wash the feet of his disciples, Peter said, no way, you will not wash my feet. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you will have no part of me. Peter's response, give me a bath then. (laughs) Wash every part of me. And Jesus says, this is important, Jesus says, no, 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 you don't need that. You're already cleaned. I just need to wash your feet. See, listen, if you're, if you're a born-again believer, you don't need to get born again every time that you come and confess. You're not getting born again. You're not getting saved. That's the blood of Jesus. I believe that when you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The moment you believed in the gospel, you were sealed. You were his. You were his child. But what happens is as we walk through life, like they needed the washing of the feet, you pick up things, and God wants to wash again and again, and it happens to us. But Jesus is forever washing and cleansing his bride. So one day, there will truly be that spotless bride that he comes back for. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions. This is, what, this is David's response after Nathan came. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. Think about that. Bathsheba, Uriah, Eliam, Joab, many men were affected and women. And those, they were really affected. And there needed to be real reconciliation. But ultimately, David knew, it's, it's me and you, Lord. Ultimately, it's before you. David's not minimizing. He's not blame shifting. He's not searching out for a scripture to justify where he's at. He says, Lord, here I am. Here I am. This is, this is the response the Lord wants. And then it says, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He says, God, you're just. Therefore, I trust in your leadership. I will not get offended or bitter at how you're going to lead me through this because you are just. Whatever you do, you are just. So again, there's so much life that just explodes from every other verse. But come with me to verse 10. This is the last section where we'll close out. Verse 10 to verse 12 is the six cries of David, which I I feel is going to lead us into our time of just responding to the Lord this morning. And this is for all of us. There's there's every person. In verse 10, look, look look what David says. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. David's cry, he said, Lord, don't just give me a new kingdom. Don't just give me a new assignment. Don't just relocate me. That's all good stuff. Sometimes the Lord needs to do that. But he says, I know if you don't get on the inside, the same issues are going to be there. He says, God, what I'm asking for is a clean heart. I need you to touch my heart. Lord, do not just forgive me and blot out my sins. I'm grateful for that, but I need to be changed. He says, Lord, would you purge my inward parts? Would you get on the inside, Lord? Would you do something deep on the inside and change me, God? I don't just want an outward forgiveness, God. I need my heart to be completely reoriented. David is asking for the inner turmoil of Psalm 38, all that we share. David's saying, God, I need that to break. God, I'm praying for something to shift. The stuff that I'm feeling, God, would you create a clean heart in me? Clean means, God, would you break the pull, the desire for the things that I've been in over the last year? I want you to break it, God. I want a clean heart. God will never reject a heart that comes like that. 
Never reject a heart that says, God, would you create in me a clean heart? Don't just, don't just, give me, don't just send me somewhere else. Don't give me a new, new assignment. Lord, I want you to do it deep in me, God. I need heart surgery is what David is saying. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me or a steadfast spirit. Come on, is, I'll speak for myself. This is what I'm prone to. I am prone to having moments of faithfulness and love for God, but then other times I just completely waver and go somewhere else. And what David is saying is, God, I don't want to just be faithful for a moment. I want to be steadfast. God, renew my commitment to you. Renew my resolve towards you. God, the passion and zeal that I lost over this last year, would you bring it back to me, God? I want to be forever faithful to you, God. Isn't that an incredible cry? It's an incredible, incredible ache in the heart that God will never, never reject. Renew a steadfast spirit. Verse 11, he says, cast me not away from your presence. Listen, repentance is always unto union with God. He understands this. Mind change, behavior change, all that stuff. But he says, but God, it's me and you. You're the most precious thing, God. I want, I want relationship with you, God. He says, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, this is important. We've got to be careful we don't read into this the wrong way as new covenant believers. David's not, not, David's not afraid of, of, of the Holy Spirit being taken in the sense that we would say. We've been sealed with the Spirit. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is that in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit would function in a very specific way. The Holy Spirit would come upon individuals, specifically kings and prophets, to anoint them for tasks. It was actually to, a grace to enable to do them, do something. David, under the leadership of Saul, he actually saw the Holy Spirit be removed from Saul. And Saul lost the grace to continue to function as the king. He lost the office. What David's crying out here is, Lord, do not let what happened to Saul happen to me. I want to be your man. I want to continue to be your king, Lord. I want to continue to have the anointing and the grace to step into what you've called me to do. And then verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David, a man under old covenant, he doesn't say restore to me salvation. He says, restore to me the joy of salvation. See, as believers, when we repent, we're not saying, God, restore to me salvation. But sin crushes our capacity to enjoy and delight in the union that Christ has made available. So we're in union, but it's dead. It's like, ah, oh, I just, I don't feel it. There's no life on it. David's saying, God, I want to come alive again in what I have with you. I, I want to sense your presence again. I want to feel the palpable love of God again in my heart, Lord. It's been cut off. I want to feel that. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit a generous spirit, a free spirit, a cheerful spirit. In other words, David is saying, Lord, I want to be freed. I don't want to keep replaying what's happened in my life over and over and over again. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is liberty. He's saying, Lord, I really want to be set free from what's happened in my life. Yeah, the memory may be there, but the sting is gone. The pain is gone. You've taken the shame from it. You've taken the guilt from it. God, I'm able to walk in newness of life. This is what David is asking for. Man, could I ask the worship team to come on up? Minus Laurel. <laughs> Only because she has a wedding. She has a wedding, guys. She didn't do anything wrong. Now, now listen, I saw, I, saw, <laughs> I saw Laurel's eyes. She passed, passed out. She fell asleep, and that's it. She lost it. No, no, no. This is the heart cry. 
Are you guys, are you guys following me in this? You see the ache in David's heart. God never rejects this. Never rejects this. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit. God, I want to continue to function in the anointing and gifting that you put on my life. Restore the joy of salvation. Uphold me with a generous spirit. David was so radically, he wanted to be so radically transformed. My goodness, I want to read this whole thing. Look at verse 13. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David says, God, I want to be so changed that I want my life to be a trophy of grace that when others are bound, I want to be able to go to them and say, look what God has done in my life. Look how he's restored me. I'll just read verse 16, 17, and then we're going to pray. David says this. He says, Lord, if you, if you wanted animal sacrifices on an altar, I'd give it to you. He says, but that's not what you want. And here's what he says in verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, this you will not despise. He says, what God is looking for, the sacrifice that God wants is a broken and contrite heart. What do you mean, God wants me to get really depressed? No, 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 that's not what he's talking about. Brokenness, there's a place when something's broken, it becomes real. It becomes open. It's a place of vulnerability. It's a place of sincerity, honesty, humility. A contrite heart means there's actual, attrition is different than contrition. Attrition means I really feel regret over loss in my life. That's not biblical repentance, that's religious repentance. Because we do not know how secure we are before the Father. But a contrite heart knows that I'm secure with God. Therefore, my repentance is not trying to earn something with you, God. I'm actually broken over what's happened in my life and how much I love you. I love you. David said, my heart is contrite, God. It's not about me losing something or trying to keep something. I just genuinely love you and want you. And I want to be right with you, God. So I'll ask the prayer team to come on up. And we don't always do this, but I know the last few weeks we've really had extended altar calls. And honestly, it's not just because... We're charismatic, so we just do extend altar calls. It really is not always like that. I, I, I do just feel there's just a grace on giving room for us to respond. We don't even need to come to a man, but it's, it can just be us and the Lord. But I just feel every time we just say yes. You may say, Pastor, last week I came. Last week I came and nothing really changed. What should I do? Come again. <laughs> come again. You stay hungry. You stay hungry for the Lord, and you watch. If there's things in your life you want to break off, you watch how God will respond. We've been talking uh, behind the scenes on the prayer team and stuff. We've been talking about the suddenlies of God. Acts 2, how God suddenly came in. But what's really stirred my heart is that they're not so sudden. Because when Peter got up to give context to what happened, he said, this is what the prophets quoted long ago. In other words, for hundreds of years, men and women had been praying into this. For the disciples in the upper room, it was a suddenly. But it was something that was birth and faithfulness and commitment and perseverance. So there is a suddenly that awaits all of us, but sometimes God says, come again. We come up, we don't feel anything. It says, it's not about that. What do I do? Change the way I pray? No, God says, keep coming again. Keep coming again. Keep coming again. Keep releasing the honest heart cry that we see in here. So why don't you stand with me? So prayer team, if you want to come forward again, you don't even need to come for prayer. If you need to go, we bless you. But we're going to give some room just to respond to the Lord.
to gaze upon Jesus. Scriptures say God's face is against the proud, but to the broken and poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. What an amazing transaction. You just recognize your need and God will fill you with the riches of his kingdom. All you need to do is recognize. All who thirst come to me. What do I need to do, Andrew? Just recognize you're thirsty. All who hunger shall be filled. What do I need to do? Just recognize you're hungry. The only thing God requires is that we recognize our need for him. And he meets us every time. So Lord, you promised that times of refreshing would come. And I thank you, God, that you are leading us into the deep things. I thank you, you're leading us deeper, Lord. And so even now, Holy Spirit, we trust in your leadership. We trust in what you're doing. We believe in your promises that refreshing is not just coming to an individual, but to this city, to this island, to this nation, Lord. And Lord, even now, we prepare our hearts, God. Revelation says that the bride of Christ readies herself. There's a cooperation that God is looking for as the bride gets ready. Lord, we're yielding and we're submitting to your voice right now. Blow the chaff away from our life, God. We pray for the baptism of fire upon our lives, Lord. Oh, that we would be a burning bride for you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Jesus, that you became Psalm 38 for us. Thank you that you felt the pain of what we, what we did, Lord. And your arms are open this morning. We come again, Lord.